This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was like a light bulb going off. Dr. Don Stater was in the ER when he met a young patient who'd overdosed on heroin. Her addiction began when she was prescribed opioids for an ankle sprain. That day, Stater began a long journey to find new ways of treating pain. Stater is an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood. And uh, I have to think that you'd probably seen opioid abuse in patients before. Why did that particular encounter affect you so much? Well, I think what was so important about that patient is she drew a direct relation between what I was doing in my practice and then the opioid epidemic as it currently stood and how rapidly it was growing. I saw that I had a big problem and a big part in creating the epidemic. How so? Well, my overprescribing. And uh, just like a lot of our patients who are addicted to heroin get into recovery, I, I myself say that I'm in recovery from being an opioid overprescriber as a physician. Do you think that's true of many physicians? I think that is a growing realization in medicine. I mean, for the last 30 years, we were taught in medical school, in residency, and thereafter that being aggressively being aggressive with utilizing opioids and controlling pain was a good thing, but I think we went way too far. Tell me more about why she stands out in your mind, her particular case. One is she was just a beautiful girl um, whose life had been ravished by addiction, an addiction that started at the hands of an emergency physician like me. Um, The other thing that really stood out with her was earlier that day, someone had sprained their ankle very very badly, and I had prescribed that patient an opioid. And to see that kind of realization that I had had performed the same act that got her addicted was a true wake-up call. I mean, in medicine, we're taught first and foremost, to do no harm. And she made me realize that throughout my first years of practice, I was doing a lot of harm, but just never realized it. Mm, Unknowingly. So about a dozen hospital and freestanding emergency rooms throughout Colorado are piloting an effort to reduce addiction by prescribing fewer narcotics and offering alternatives to help patients cope with pain. How do you begin to do that? Well, we began by looking at our own practice and asking a simple question. How could we do things better? And Colorado uh, ASAP, which is the American College of Emergency Physicians, created guidelines which are among the most forward-looking in the country. They not only address decreasing opioids from the emergency department, they address how we can treat pain in different ways. Yeah, give me some examples. So, for example, let's say you came in with an ankle sprain or even a broken ankle. Let's say you broke it. Okay. Um, instead of giving you morphine, I can give you a different drug called ketamine, which is every bit as strong as morphine, uh, but oftentimes doesn't have that same high associated with it. I could use topical medicines like lidocaine that I could put directly where you hurt. And then I can give you in your IV things like Tordal, which is, again, a morphine equivalent, which is actually of the NSAID variety. Um, And oftentimes what we're finding is when you use a combination of different drugs, you never have to reach for an opioid. And that's one of the changes in practice that we're hoping to champion. Are some of these drugs drugs that can be brought with the patient when they go home, or is that all administered in the hospital or the ER? Those a lot of those drugs are administered in the hospital, but some of them can be taken home, like lidocaine patches, uh, which are over-the-counter and also prescription. Um, Tordal, which is a stronger NSAID anti-inflammatory, can be prescribed. Um, the, the plethora of drugs that we use in the emergency department is, of course, not available at home. But oftentimes, 
we can control pain in the emergency department and get people home feeling more comfortable and in a more safe variety. Is the idea to stop prescribing opioids altogether or just to drastically reduce their Yeah. So opioids are very appropriate for certain types of pain, but not for all. And before, we used to basically treat everything, every type of pain with an opioid, and that was wrong. Now we know that there's some types of pain that are very appropriate for opioids, but we have to be judicious with what we're using them for. Is there a risk that patients um, have to put up with a higher level of pain than they are accustomed to? Um, You know, I've heard anecdotes, for instance, we got an email into the newsroom some time ago for someone who says, you know, the, the pendulum may be swinging too far in the other direction. If a doctor gives me say, fewer pills because he or she is concerned that, you know, a habit might form. That's tough if I live in a rural community and the hospital Mm -hmm. isn't close, for instance. Um, In trying to avoid addiction, do create a hassle for some and maybe even a higher level of pain for some? Well, one, we this is not an anti-opioid or an anti-patient campaign that we're waging. In fact, I view it very much as the opposite. It is pro-patient and is pro-better pain control. We know some things about opioids. One, that they're good for acute pain, three days, right? Three days is the literature that says that this is when they're good for, three to five, Mm -hmm. even after surgery. After that, ironically, opioids can actually lower your pain threshold and cause longer-term pain. Really? So there's a thing called opioid-induced hyperesthesia. And a lot of our patients don't realize that that initial gateway where we think that, hey, I'm controlling this pain actually leads to more pain long term. So, And let me just say, I, I think I understand that perhaps prior to experiments like yours, uh, doctors might be prescribing weeks worth of opioids. Is that true? For sure. And sometimes, a lot of times, patients wouldn't use all of them and they'd end up in the medicine cabinet and then a teenager or a child would start using them. So the medicine cabinet is actually one of the principal ways that people get exposed and addicted to these types of drugs. Mm. Let's continue this conversation after a short break. So my guest is Dr. Don Stater. He's an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood, and he's involved in a statewide pilot project to see if there are alternatives that work that are not habit-forming for people in pain. This is in the face of an opioid epidemic that has claimed record lives in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to my conversation with emergency physician Dr. Don Stater of Swedish Medical Center in Englewood. He is part of an effort across the state. It involves about a dozen hospitals and freestanding emergency rooms. Uh, piloting an effort to reduce addiction by prescribing fewer narcotics and offering alternatives to help patients cope with pain. And before the break, I mentioned the record number of deaths from opioids in Colorado. That is in part because heroin deaths are on the rise. What we know is that so often uh, opioid addiction starts with prescription painkillers and then uh, migrates, progresses to heroin. Heroin is often cheaper and easier to get. What consciousness do you have in this effort about the heroin side of addiction and whether you might actually be leading people to some extent in that direction? For sure. So first of all, let's start out with some numbers. 
Around 70 to 80% of our patients who are addicted to heroin start with a prescription drug, oftentimes from the pad of a physician or a dentist. Um, Once people start going into heroin, um, it is a true and terrible medical disease. And that's the thing. Addiction is a medical disease. So one of the things we've been trying to do within this study is to change that context of understanding for our clinicians, where it's no longer a moral failing, it's a medical disease. And once it's medical, we can do something about it. Why is that an important change of perception? Because addiction is highly stigmatized. Most people have learned of addiction through their parents or through family members or friends who've told you that addicts are bad. Addicts are people you want to avoid. Addicts are responsible for their own addiction. And that's something where you have to overcome that stigma in order to adequately care for someone. Now, in the emergency department, I see people who struggle with the, with the medical problem of addiction all the time including heroin, which has been just so ascendant in the number of patients that I've been seeing who've come in with complications from this really horrible class of drug. And again, just to reflect what you said before the break, you see your own uh, actions as having contributed to that to some extent because you were rather quick to prescribe prescription painkillers. Why do you think that became the go-to for so many physicians? First of all, we were told that it was safe. And back in the 1990s, we were told that only 1% of patients who you gave an opioid to became addicted, and almost never anyone who had actual legitimate pain. Was someone lying to you? The science was horrible, and it was twisted and contorted by pharmaceutical agencies and, and other agents who wanted to basically make a profit. What results has this pilot project, uh, and I understand that it's preliminary, what results uh, is this showing in terms of of reducing the number of prescription painkillers that you rely on? So far, we have three months of results, and I guess I'll go as far to say as the results are impressive. Um, And really, what's most impressive when I speak with people in the different hospitals and freestandings which are participating is the real change in mentality that our physicians, our nurse practitioners, and our physician's assistants, our nurses, really the whole hospital is taken. They understand how big a problem is. They understand they can treat pain better and in a more scientific way. And we understand that we can care for our patients in our communities safely. A little later in the program, we're going to hear a report from our health reporter, John Daly. Uh, And one issue that, that he found in investigating this is that insurance companies often don't cover alternatives. So this becomes a cost issue for folks who have to pay out of pocket, is my understanding. Is there any sense that that could change? Oh, yes. That is an outrage, first of all. And it just goes to show you that we built a system really that surrounds opioids for pain control. And now we have to start taking that system apart and building a new system that better addresses the needs of our patients in our communities. And definitely our insurer, our partners in insurance have a huge role to play. They need to start paying for things which are safer for patients and efficacious. We're going to hear in a bit about dentists experimenting with drugs like Expirel. Uh, there's an intravenous form of acetaminophen, which is essentially Tylenol. How much of a culture change is this for a doctor? So this is a limited pilot project. I imagine you'd like to reach, what, hundreds of physicians and nurse practitioners around the state? For sure. Not only around the state, around the country, around the nation. 
because this is not only a problem here in Colorado, but in every community um, across across the whole United States. And, and what what kind of a culture change is it in a doctor's office or in a hospital or in an ER? You know, pain, first of all, pain patients who suffer from pain, any type of pain, we see every day. Almost every patient is there because something hurts. Um, so it's a culture change that affects how you deal with almost every single patient you interact with. Um, and it's a culture change which is really profound because instead of just throwing medications and opioids at people when they're in pain, suddenly we have to take a step back and understand the patient, understand what type of pain they're having, apply better science to addressing that pain, and also form better relationships where we can counsel patients that, hey, even though you're going through pain now, we know that if you take the following steps, we can lessen that pain long term. Mm, so it's really not just finding out if a patient is in pain, but really the nature of that pain. Oh. And yet I think of pain as so subjective. It sounds like a difficult thing to assess. Yeah. So first of all, we should understand about pain that it's not simple. Right? There's a biopsychosocial nature to pain. A biopsychosocial, yes. Yep. It's part body, it's part mind. Yep. And it's part community and how you've been taught to interact with pain and how you've been taught to cope with it. Yep. Mm. So, Does that take more time out of a physician's schedule? And is that reasonable? For sure. It takes a lot more time to care for patients adequately and correctly, especially when it comes to pain. But it's really a shift that we need to make if we hope to get this opioid epidemic under control. Are you hopeful? Extremely. What gives you that hope? Because I think a lot of people look at the numbers and see doom. Well, the hope that I have is, one, a little bit introspective. I see how great I've changed in the last year and a half when I've undertaken this journey. And then when I look at my partners who work in my emergency department at Swedish and in these other ones, other hospitals in these different pilots, I see them changing. I see them treating their patients in a different light, in a different way. And I know that if we can do it here, we can do it everywhere. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Dr. Don Stater is an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center and associate medical director there. He's also a board member of the American College of Emergency Physicians and serves on its opioid task force. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the break, we met an emergency physician who sprung into action after he realized he was contributing to the opioid crisis. Now, the view from the dentist's chair and CPR health reporter John Daly. At a dental center in Lafayette, oral surgeon Kurt Hayes gets started. We're taking out number 116 and 17. Flora Brewington is getting three wisdom teeth removed. The surgery involves wrenching teeth out with pliers, so it's known to cause some post-operative pain. For years, dentists have prescribed pain-killing opioids like Percocet or Vicodin, but Dr. Hayes recently switched to an alternative. So this is the beginning of the Expiral. He injects the FDA-approved local anesthetic Expiral into his patient's gums. That area will stay numb, pain-free for two to three days. It's not an opioid. Hayes says he can now generally remove wisdom teeth without using any narcotics for pain, so there's no need to prescribe his patient a dozen or more pills. And so now I've backed off to where I don't give any narcotics whatsoever, and I have people just using ibuprofen and then over-the-counter Tylenol, and that's acceptable, and it, it takes care of the pain. 
Hayes followed the development of Expirel in journals. Doctors started using it for C-sections. He started using it mainly for patients who had abused narcotics in the past. After seeing positive results, Hayes started using it for all his patients. We need to be looking at every aspect of the opioid crisis, whether it's the exposures, whether it's the number of narcotics that are being prescribed per case. Make no mistake, it is a crisis. 300 people died from an opioid overdose in Colorado last year. Opioid use often leads to an addiction to heroin, which claimed another 228 lives. Together, those two causes now rival deaths from diabetes, car accidents, or chronic liver disease. Opioids ought to be drugs of last resort, not drugs of first choice. That's Robert Valick. He heads a Colorado consortium for drug abuse prevention. Valick says medicine cabinets containing leftover pills are often the gateway to an opioid addiction. One strategy to combat that is to reduce the number of pills doctors prescribe in the first place. Hold off on the opioid. Try the other stuff first. See how far I can get you without them. And then if I need them, they're there in my back pocket. Colorado's Dental Board is developing new best practices, and the Colorado Dental Association is holding educational seminars. Dr. Brett Kessler is a dentist in Denver and past president of the state association. He says across the board, medical providers are reexamining their role in the opioid crisis. It's on every healthcare practitioner's mind. Looking for alternatives to manage the pain is huge. It's a growing trend nationally. Kessler notes many teens and young adults get their first exposure to the narcotics when they get their wisdom teeth removed. There's studies out there that show if you give more than a three-day dose of opiates, they've got a much higher chance of becoming addicted later in life. I was like, don't give me many opioids or, or none. Patient Paula Ryan was in Dr. Hayes' office recently for a tooth extraction. They discussed her pain management options, and she chose the alternative, Expirel. She's a mom and remembers having another dental surgery years ago. Then she was prescribed opioids for pain and was pretty out of it for a few days. She prefers the alternative. I was wide awake and I could do whatever I needed to do and I was there for my daughter. So, you know, it was a much better outcome. I would definitely choose this route again. Expirel costs between $250 and $400, and Dr. Hayes says it is not covered by insurance. But that potential cost didn't keep patient Flora Brewington from choosing it. She's an MD practicing family medicine and opted for the non-opioid method to manage her post-operative pain. Yeah, I can't think of a, a disadvantage other than having to you know, pay out of pocket for it at this point. Brewington says she'd rather not have any extra pills, forgotten in some medicine cabinet, just waiting to be discovered. I have two little kids at home, so it's best not to have narcotics sitting around. Experts say it's that kind of awareness from both medical patients and providers that'll be crucial to turning the corner on the opioid crisis. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Still to come, when your office is a construction crane. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's probably the highest profile job in Metro Denver these days, operating a crane. There are dozens of them on the skyline. Many are on residential projects. Consider this. There are nearly 30,000 apartment units under construction in the metro area. All that building made us wonder, what's it like to go to work in a crane? Earlier this year, we met a guy who operates one. My name is Aaron Genova, operating engineer and tower crane operator 
currently employed by RMS Cranes. And the Project Genova's on is a 12-story apartment building that'll take up half a block along California Street. His workday starts around 6.30 in the morning. There's no elevator, so he climbs to work. But first, he has to turn the crane on. When the cranes first get on site, they're typically powered by a mobile generator. And then once uh, electricity is brought to the site, we just have this convenient little switch that powers it all up. These tower cranes are electric, which I think is fabulous because I don't have to deal with diesel fuel. I don't have to smell the exhaust. It's a wonderful thing. And with that, Genova starts his climb, rung by rung to the top, 200 feet above the city. I can see another tower operator. Oh, two of them. Two of them making their climbs this morning, ascending up toward the top. We attached a video camera to his head so you can see what he sees at CPRnews.org. Right here, I guess we're probably about 80 feet, 100 feet above street level. I'm not sure how well the mic was able to pick it up, but it's usually much louder on street level. All the commotion with the construction workers and just the noise of the city as we get up toward the top gets nice and quiet, which is nice. It takes him about 15 minutes to get to the top, and once he's safely inside the cab, we're able to chat. Aaron in the sky, me on the ground. I want to know if it's claustrophobic up there. Not to me. It's completely surrounded by glass. We've got glass to the left, to the right, in front of, below, above. It's better than any corner office because we've got all the corners. <laughs> and it moves. So to me, it's not claustrophobic. I, I would see how it could be for some people. There's plenty of room in here to stand up. Uh, you're not going to be able to do like a exercise routine in here by any means, but but there's enough room for your lunchbox and you know enough room to stretch out. Yeah, how often do you have a break? And I imagine that includes a bathroom break, which means climbing back down. That's the probably one of the worst parts about this job. Uh, rule number one is we need to stay regular and uh, make sure we're eating and taking care of ourselves. So we don't get sick up here because there is no bathroom up here. Um, you could, I suppose, if you really wanted to, you could climb down. Um, most of us do not do that. Myself, I pick up these five-gallon buckets from a barbecue joint right down the road from the house, and they, they use them. I guess that's how they buy their barbecue stuff. And then I go and pick them up before they throw them away, and I rope one up uh, every couple of weeks. And if I need to use the restroom, well, then I use that. And then I rope it down and dispose of it. So what will you be doing today? Help me understand exactly what the crane operator is responsible for well, uh, we essentially feed the project with materials and tools. A lot of these sites, especially in downtown areas, there is no space for storage of tools or materials. So it'll come in on a truck, and we need to reach out to the street, wherever it is. It's usually on the street. On this project, we use this little area of 21st. We close this little area of the street, and I reach out there and grab the crew's tools and materials and, and place them wherever they need to be. It's just a matter of constantly keeping the guys with the tools and the materials they need to do their work. So you call what you operate a tower crane in part because of how tall it is. Are there lots of different types of cranes? And are you able to operate different types? Absolutely. So I went through the apprenticeship program with the local union. Through that apprenticeship, it's a three-year program, 
and we are offered the opportunity to get training on lots of different heavy equipment. That's what this union does, International Union of Operating Engineers. When I went through the program, I knew I wanted to be into cranes. I knew some people that were in cranes, so that's the direction I went. This is a tower crane. There are many types of cranes. There's crawler cranes, there's hydraulic cranes, telescopic boom cranes. I fortunately got the training to operate all of those machines. Now, tower crane's the job I prefer. There's no drama up here, man. It's just me and the machine, and I listen to the gentleman on the radio, and uh, we just do our work. Um, I like that it's quiet. I, I frankly enjoy my solitude, and uh, we definitely have that. Is this lucrative work? I believe it is. I'm pretty comfortable with the, uh, the compensation. Um, it's negotiated by the local union. The downside would be that these booms like this come and go. Right now, there's plenty for us to do, but... That could all change at any moment. I'm sure most of the listeners remember we just went through a recession and there weren't too many tower cranes around. So uh, if all you know how to do is run a tower crane and we go back into recession, well, you're probably going to get pretty hungry. And do you have to be prepared to operate a crane anywhere in the country or the world? Or do you get to mostly have jobs where you live in the Denver area? Most of us stick around town. There are members that travel all over the country. I've even talked to folks that have been to other parts of the world with their skill set. I've not done that. It sounds somewhat appealing, uh, but with a family, that's kind of hard to do, you know. Mm. Are there many women in this field? There aren't very many. Uh, I only know of a few, and that's unfortunate, at least in and around the Denver area. I can't really speak to too many of the other locals. But uh, there are certainly not many that I know of in the Denver area. There probably should be. What happens if it gets really windy, or there's hail, or thunderstorms? Yeah, well, it can be terrifying, for one. The, uh, the wind can certainly have an effect on these machines. It, it pushes the loads in the machines all over the place. So that's something that we manage, and uh, it can only be taught in the field. We have tools up here that tell us what the wind speed is. And if uh, we're getting really strong winds to where we can't uh, control the loads and do the, the job safely, we stop work and we release the brakes and let the machine weather vane and uh, we hang out and see if the weather's going to get any better and sometimes it doesn't. Um, when you lightning say- and thunderstorms, that's, that's for real. That, that does happen. If we get a really bad lightning storm, it's obviously best to just stay within the machine because we're safest in the crane. When you say weather veining, that is you let the crane rotate freely in the wind so that it's not bracing up against the power of the wind. Uh, it, it's free-floating. You got it. That's exactly right. What are some of the things that you will move today? I am going to be moving some concrete forms. I'm going to be moving some, uh, looks like some rebar. Um, Lots of tools. Lots of tools. Um, I'm actually going to come around and try to make a lift with you real quick. They're forming up the second level of this structure. All right, Jeff, I'm going to come around and uh, bring the hook down to you now, buddy. So you're manipulating what you call the hook. This is what essentially grabs things. Yeah, that's right. The hook hangs from the crane, and uh, my job is to try to get it to where they need it. And you'll be able to hear them communicating with me on the radio. I, I can see some of what they need, but things are far away, and they get hidden behind walls, and they get kind of hard to see. So Do you have to have really good eyesight for this, John? Well, it sure helps. So that was the first pick of the day right there. Nice. I'm glad I could be a part of it with you. When you look at buildings that you've worked on, um, do you have a sense of, of pride knowing you had a hand in it? You know, I do. Um, it's, it's nice to, to kind of look back and 
look back and reminisce and think about what you did out there and what you were part of. Um, it takes a bunch of us to build these things. Well, thanks for sharing your view with us, quite literally. <laughs> you bet. Thanks for, thanks for getting a hold of me, man. It's been a pleasure. Aaron Genova is an operator with Denver-based RMS Cranes. We spoke back in May as he helped build a 12-story apartment building downtown. You can see what Aaron sees each day at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters on listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.